The following program has some offensive language. Though none of us would be here without the verb deployed, it's thought by many better not to hear the verb deployed. It's Wednesday, March 30th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Biden had a call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. You know I love saying Today, a major announcement from that call was reported by Pete Alexander of NBC. What we're hearing from the White House is that the president also informed President Zelensky that the U.S. intends to provide the Ukrainian government with a half billion dollars, $500 million of direct budgetary aid. Which is a lot, right? Or is it? It's hard to know what to make of these figures. So let's think about it this way. It's, it's a little hard to get the exact precise Ukrainian budget of 2020 or 2021. I've seen a couple figures, 66 billion US dollars, 71 billion, but it works out to about $1,500 a person. The government is or was spending per citizen about $1,500. That's extremely poor, by the way, by European standards, really by world standards, it's below average, Bolivia, Belize, Namibia, they will each spend more on their citizens per citizen than Ukraine was able to. By comparison, the United States, I mean, we have a huge, you know, almost $7 trillion budget by now, but per person, the spending is about $20,000. Okay. So when the U.S. gives Ukraine, sure, the $500 million, but add that to the $13.6 billion in emergency aid that Congress voted for, and also the $120 million that they were able to instantly allocate right when the war started from agencies like USAID, you look at that, it winds up being 20, maybe approaching a quarter of Ukraine's overall federal budget, pre-war. The U.S. equivalent, we could say, is like $1.5 trillion, but throw that away, it's, it's not really equivalent, it's just crude division. But the point is, the U.S. is giving Ukraine much, 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 much more than they're used to spending, not just on war, but almost on everything. They are not giving, the U.S. is not giving Ukraine more than they know what to do with. They know what to do with the aid they're getting, which is to say to shoot down and counterattack the Russians. But as a measure of capacity, what Ukraine normally gets and what they're getting now, it is an astounding number. The EU pledged a half a billion dollars and it doubled the pledge to over a billion dollars is, you know, 1.1 billion. Why? Because it's a billion euros. And so you do the math that's necessary. But I do want to point out and compare it to the U.S. level of giving. I also think of guys like Roman Abramovich. He's the Russian oligarch said to be worth around $15 billion. He's friendly with some Ukrainians and he could basically bankroll the whole country if he wanted to. If Ukrainians are on the fence about some of the terms for peace, I mean, how do we give away the whole Donbass region? We have so much industry there. We depend on it. Abramovich could say, I'll take care of you. I'll write you a check for the first couple years. Abramovich was, by the way, lightly poisoned, it would seem, as he took place in peace talks that neither side really could say why he was there. Yeah, you know, guy. You got 15 billion, you get to show up to these things. By the way, Petro Poroshenko is the president of Ukraine before Volodymyr Zelensky. He's worth $1.5 billion. His money could go a long way. A poor, poor country is vulnerable, but it's also capable of being boosted in a hurry. 
The point is, rather than conveying these amounts through numbers, they don't really mean anything. I think it's better to convey through ideas or analogies or comparisons like everything I said, the U.S. sending more money into Ukraine than they've ever had, is still less than Russian oligarchs are seeing blocked from their accounts by all accounts. And what does the aid buy? Well, in the case of Ukrainians and their well-trained, motivated defense forces, it buys capacity, it buys victories, and therefore it most crucially buys time. On the show today, I spiel about those Biden kids and their habit of just leaving things lying around. But first, Chuck Klosterman is an essayist and journalist who, like me, came of age in the 90s. Good decade, those 90s. We had Seinfeld and grunge and baggy, baggy clothing, often in gray and brown. We also had the internet. Well, we had some internet, but not too much internet, blessedly so. Klosterman's collection, The 90s, looks at the decade. He's up next. In 1997, fax sales exceeded a billion dollars. Fax machines, remember those? The only time they were over a billion dollars. David Kaczynski's first time ever in using the internet was to look up a long document that he had the growing realization was written by his brother, Ted. It was the Unabomber's Manifesto. Tab Clear existed. These are three facts from Chuck Klosterman's new book, The 90s, a book. It is indeed a book and quite a book. And I wanted to get some of the facts in front of you because there were so many revelations, facts, things I forgot, things I didn't know that were powerful and amusing and thought-provoking. But I think in this conversation. It's not going to be a recitation of facts. We're going to talk about the implications and the theories and all the things that Chuck mulled over about what the 90s and remembering an era meant to us. But I just needed to point out there's some great facts and great sentences in this book. Chuck, welcome back to The Gist. It's good to be here. What was, I'll start with a trivia question. (laughs) What was the number one show, the number one sitcom in the 90s in terms of number of episodes that ran entirely in the 90s? Sitcom. Okay, that's an interesting question. So it had to have been something that started early and ended late. Um, What is it? So the answer is coach. Coach. Ah, okay. Which, and why that's interesting is Coach was the sort of show that was probably cumulatively watched by well over a billion people, right? 200 sure. episodes. Yeah. And, like yeah. so many people had some sort of relationship with Coach, only what did it matter or did it matter? And it was like a lot of shows or pieces of culture that people had a relationship with that I don't even know if they seem significant. They at least took up a lot of their time and yet in retrospect almost didn't exist. And you write about that, especially with TV, but with other things. Well, I I, I feel like one of the key differences from the period we're in now and that period, uh, it, it, at least in terms of, of cultural differences, uh, wasn't just what was on television, but 
the place that it occupied in the culture. That it was, I, it was definitely perceived as sort of what you did when there was nothing else to do. The idea of it really being something like appointment television or prestige television, those would have been sort of seen as ludicrous ideas almost. I mean, uh, when people would – the, the very first people who argued that you know maybe television is as good as film now, um, that was seen as like – like what we would now describe as like a hot take. It was the, it was the, the assumption was that nobody really seriously thought that. I mean, you know, when The Sopranos came on, that's when you start hearing people say that and trying to make kind of a cogent argument as to why. But the thing like a, a show like Coach or, or so many TV shows from that period where the, the, the viewership was technically massive when we look back on these numbers um, and they were not taken seriously even by the people who love the show themselves. Like it was it was just sort of seen as this thing that was another thing to do to sort of eat up the time that one was experiencing during what was in many ways seen as sort of an underwhelming period to be alive, I think. And I think television reflected that. You know, I've read I read Halberstam's The 50s. And of course, Halberstam's both a great sports writer and a great writer of, you know, non-sports, non-fiction, Vietnam culture. But for the most part, the people who will examine the culture, sometimes you get the sense that they couldn't even name three pro athletes. But let me just um, compliment you on a point you made. And so the listeners will, will understand. You talk about the era of college football before there was a unified national champion, before back when you could kind of debate who was the national champion. And I'm entirely convinced that it was entirely in keeping with the ethos of the 90s and that after, and you know, it predated that too. But after the 90s, and again, after the internet and after all the people who were maybe angry or wanted reform, that's a great encapsulation of the people who defend the internet and the people who decry the internet. But all the people with strong opinions about this were going to be unified on the internet. It would become impossible. In fact, it did become impossible for college football to just skate along on this idea of, well, maybe I'll have my national champion and you have your national champion and there'll never be a national champion. So what I'm saying is it's entirely appropriate to this book and this decade that you cited that as an example that exemplified the 90s. Well, I, you know, I appreciate you saying that because the thing I wrote about college football, it's only like four or five pages, but I did consciously place it right in front of the very long section on the internet because what college football was uh, prior to, you know, uh, kind of the end of that decade uh, was something where not having a clear understanding um, was kind of baked into it and was a totally OK thing. Like it was I, it was it was a completely acceptable thing to argue about whether or not, you know, this mythical championship mattered. And, and there was a certain cachet to not being the champion. If you had as good a season as the team who won the national title and you finished second, you could almost make the argument that. Right. This was better or whatever. Um, and in some ways, the Internet represented the same thing. Uh, like, you know, I, I, I talk about this period of time when 
if, uh, you know, I, I talk about the Mandela effect, which I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are aware of this idea that there are these kind of collective misrememberings uh, of like when Nelson Mandela died or or was Sinbad in a movie about a genie that he wasn't. But many people remember seeing all of these things from the early 90s. Two, two um, things with yeah, pretty yeah. much equivalent stakes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, or they're just they're, those are the, the, the examples people are most familiar with. The other right. the, the, the big thing also is like, oh household products how they're actually spelled you know how mm-hmm. uh, was there where's the punctuation all of these things that if, if a discussion was happening about these things anecdotally it came up kind of at random in a bar say in 1992 the consensus of the table uh, sort of became its own kind of reality that people were comfortable accepting you know, if 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 a bunch of people at the table insist that Nelson Mandela died and a couple of them are like, I saw the state funeral on Nightline. I remember that or whatever. People would leave the bar kind of being like, well, I, I guess I guess maybe that's the case, you know. Yeah. By the end of the decade where you could pull your phone out and sort of uh, prove whether or not this was true, not only did that allow these people to have this information in a real way, it sort of changed the tenor of conversation. It be- you know it became uh, much more uh, dangerous maybe is a loaded word but problematic to sort of speak off the cuff and to just sort of offer yeah. ideas up knowing that they could be verified in seconds by the person sitting across from you. Well, yeah, I mean a current trend that you write about is obviously political partisanship, but hating people with different opinions. And maybe because in the 90s, there was less of a way to put your finger on what was the actual fact. So the arguments weren't, well, I'm clearly right and you're clearly wrong and we could prove it thanks to the magic machines in our pockets, right? It was a little more humility. All right, from what I know, I think I might be right and that uh, could apply to facts or that could uh, extend to all manner of opinion. But now, no, I'm clearly right. You're clearly wrong. It says so right here. You're an idiot. I can't listen to you. Well, you see, now, I, I, I kind of suspect that maybe internally a lot of the things we see on social media had always been in people's minds, like mm-hmm. people's reaction to the news and other things had been the same way it is now. But there was no vessel for that, right? The only vessel for it was to literally say it to someone and no one's going to do that. I mean, it's really funny when like Twitter was new and, you know, they, people would say like, oh, well, you know, it's it's kind of like a party, you know, it's kind of like, a you know, it's like a it's like a, it's like a town hall or whatever or like, or like a town square. But like, can you imagine going to a party and one person is constantly standing on a table yelling political opinions at people <laughs> like they, like if that's how it was. No one would go to that party and that individual would probably not leave the party walking. And half of the party would be participants screaming to the host, you have to ban him from the party. Yeah, yeah. And, they, or, and half the participants saying, how dare a host ban anyone from a party? And then people complaining about the party while they're there, constantly yeah. spending the entire party saying how this party is a hellscape. You know, <laughs> they're all these things. Like if that happened in reality, like it would be a completely different world. So, you know, it's some of this, these like the polarization we talk about, it's just that it's like a visible polarization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You and I were very influenced by Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, and he had a specific type of personality, as we all do. But as I look at it, it was very much informed by the fact that he was depressed and probably clinically depressed. So my question is, if if Kurt Cobain wasn't clinically depressed, 
Um, I guess it's going to be hard to untangle the musical achievements, but I'm certainly, I subscribe in general to the notion that depression doesn't make you a better artist. In fact, it sometimes gets in the way. So if Kurt Cobain weren't clinically depressed or had his depression properly treated, how different would the 90s have been? Well, I mean, yeah, this is, looking at grunge in general, obviously Nirvana is the highest profile kind of member of this fraternity or whatever. It's like, but when you look at grunge, and how how much death became intertwined with this genre. I mean, it's like not just Kurt Cobain, but then the suicide of, you know, Chris Cornell much later and two drug deaths and Alice in Chains. And there was just like, it, you know, Mark Lanigan just died. You know, th- th- there, there was a seriousness to grunge that was contradicted by sort of the way the bands looked, the way they band, the bands acted. They wouldn't give a serious interview. They didn't seem to take themselves seriously, but because they didn't take themselves seriously, it suggested they were taking the music more seriously. You know, I, I write about Nevermind a lot about this and I see people review this book and they're like, he's claiming Nevermind mattered more than like, you know, the unification of Germany. Even though I say the exact opposite of that in the book, my point about this is that it is not the record that mattered so much, even though it did matter and it was great. It was the non-musical impact he had on what became the way to understand young people. Right. So if you look at a band like Nirvana or like in a smaller sense, like a band like Fugazi or whatever, these bands were significant not for the music they made, but for these non-musical reasons. So if Kurt Cobain had made the exact same music he did – but every interview they gave, they seemed happy to be there and <laughs> yeah. not oppressed by it. It would have totally changed the what like what people would have injected into those records and heard back. It was it was very exciting to think about Nirvana and then listen to the music in a way that you didn't normally experience because it seemed as though they were almost trying to kind of explain to people how you're supposed to feel, you know? Right. So I've read, I think, well, almost all your books. And uh, at least lately, you have a habit, which is, I think, a good one of acknowledging maybe I'm wrong. I am a product of this time. Maybe I'd see things differently if uh, circumstances change. So you have a lot of uh, humility and I think knowledge of how much to hold on to an opinion. But also, your opinions have changed. As someone who thinks about things, your opinions definitely have changed. Maybe your principles have changed. Is there a through line? with the sort of opinions or even better principles that you have found malleable within yourself and a through line with those that you've stuck to even if they've uh, you know been assailed by uh, other critics or new circumstance hmm well one thing that uh, that that is is absolutely true is that commercially people prefer polemics that they they, 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 they they want people to have uh, inflexible, uh, aggressive opinions. And I think when I was younger, I, I, I agreed with that. And I, I, that's kind of how I was. And that has changed. That's definitely changed in me over time in the sense that, um, I, uh, I am extremely skeptical of people with strong opinions. I mean, mm. I just, I, I that, that's probably, uh, the biggest thing that uh, that stops me from listening to someone is the sense that their opinions are not uh, uh, balanced, that, 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 that they're driven by these kind of emotions that they have and they're using their intellect basically to support their emotions. So that maybe that's maybe one thing that has changed about me. I think in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm a much better writer now than I was when I was younger, like almost sort of 
It's a weird thing. Almost embarrassingly so. I mean, I, f- I feel like that, that, that maybe I didn't start figuring out really how to do this till I was like midway into my thirties or whatever, you know? Um, but at the same time, I recognize that what people like very often, especially about the early books, is they feel like this is a real person talking to me. Like yeah. this is not somebody who sat down and thought about this sentence 50 times. This is somebody who wrote this sentence and published it. You know, when you're young and you read something that's like really dense and complicated and it requires all this cognitive dissonance and like this, it almost seems like the sentence itself is a contradiction and you got to read it four times to understand it. When you're young, you're like, oh, that person must be real smart. Like they must be smarter than me. This must be great. And then when you get older, you realize that that's bad writing, (laughs) that that writing is a communicative art and that you're trying to communicate ideas. Yeah. Um, so now when I work on books, I, you know, I, I, I edit them a lot, pretty compulsively, I think to the irritation maybe of my own editor at times. I mean, I will, ju- I, I would, if I could, I would work on one book for the rest of my life and have it never come out. I would just keep rewriting it over and over and over again, you know? Um, and what uh, the main thing I'm doing is straightening it, just making it as clear as possible. Like, you know, and the, and the thing is, there's like... If you go too far with that, then it starts having this, this interesting effect where people are like, well, anybody could do this. You know, it's like a, a baby could do this or whatever, you know. But that's sort of the goal, to make the person reading the book feel like they're writing it with their mind. Chuck Klosterman, his life goals are one book written forever that no one reads. But in the, <laughs> but in the current and in the present, he is out with the 90s. Chuck, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. And now, the spiel. Today, the Washington Post reported at length about an infamous laptop belonging to one Robert Hunter Biden. That is the gentleman's full name. Laptop infamy has correlated to presidential election losses in the past, the recent past. So in the weeks right before the 2020 presidential election, you could tell that the U.S. press corps was loath to dance with danger of the Carlos or Hunter variety. And so the Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani hyped reports of a blind laptop repairman who couldn't make a positive ID were written off as outlandish or after actual vetting was done, written off as a bit too shaky to stake a presidential race on. And Hunter's laptop became of a piece with an outlandish fiction alleged by the Trump administration and their sycophants, bamboo and ballot boxes, the Mexicans paying for it, Sharpies on hurricane maps, Biden fraudsters being held in barges off of Gitmo, Hunter's laptop. Oh, come on. Well, we have some insight here at CBS News, and we were able to obtain records that we believe came from Hunter Biden's laptop. We had these records in late 2020, and they do raise some significant questions about his tax strategy. Turns out the laptop's real, and it had emails that federal investigators are interested in. 
Is he going to itemize? Will he deduct computer upkeep as a business expense, considering he just seems to leave computers behind? CBS saying there, they've had this story since 2020. Wall Street Journal had it too. New York Times reported in 2020 on the Wall Street Journal having it. But the Trump administration couldn't convince anyone in the legitimate journalism world to run with this story. The legitimate journalism world couldn't confirm the provenance of the laptop. And they say, and I believe believe them, but the right doesn't and won't believe them. Let's also note that even though the laptop was confirmed and seems to have emails that are relevant to Hunter Biden's business dealings, so far nothing has implicated Joe Biden, but the dismissive tone of a lot of the coverage from 2020 should be criticized. And then there's Ashley Biden, who really was a victim and did nothing wrong except to act a bit too casually with sensitive materials, considering that her dad was running for president. Politics, you must have noticed by now, have gotten pretty dirty. Here's Rachel Maddow from a few months ago. At the same time, another effort was underway in secret to try to expose the contents of a diary kept the previous year by Mr. Biden's daughter, Ashley. That was, by the way, a five-minute segment in which Maddow spent four minutes, 32 seconds just reading from a New York Times story, just in case her viewers were unaware of the existence of the Daily. The organization run by the oft-arrested James O'Keefe is scurrilous, and the diary has no news value, but the chain of custody is concerning, I would say. Ashley left it behind in a house she was staying in during COVID. A new occupant moved in with Ashley's old diary there. This new person was a resident of MAGA Nation and apparently tried to peddle the book for cash and political gain. Some sections have been excerpted and published online, and though they aren't widely disseminated and though they aren't inculpatory of anything her father did, they're embarrassing. And to be clear, like I said, she's the victim. In fact, as federal investigators reportedly scour Hunter's laptop for information that might be indictable, in the case of Ashley's diary, the investigation centers around if James O'Keefe and his group acted illegally. Still, I do wonder if their dad would like to have a chat with the two kids. Something along the lines of, you know how I make my thoughts known, Ashley and Hunter? You know how I don't keep it bottled up inside? I think you may be misconstruing my methods. How I leave it all out there? I don't mean literally you should leave all your private correspondence out there. People are going to want to look at it, guys. And you're bright Biden kids. You're not some dumb doocy. You're a Biden. I can't believe I have to tell you these things. Again, this is what I say to a doocy. You're a stupid son of a bitch. But this is what I have to say to you, Bidens. I'm not going to tell you. Why would I tell you? you got to be silly. You know me. I'm not into keeping all the information under lock and key. My thoughts on regime change in Russia, I just let them out there. But my gosh, guys, when you write incriminating stuff, don't just leave it somewhere and then walk away. You know what I say in this business. Keep your friends close, but your personal correspondence closer. Now run along and remember, don't be an effing doocy. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesk is the longtime equipment manager of the Minnesota State University Screaming Eagles football team. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu depperu dupperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>